Um, today we come to one of the most uh, famous stories in the Bible. And I think we know that it is uh, famous uh, because it has influenced our culture and our language. We've had already a reference to the Samaritans. Uh, we have the expression, a, a good Samaritan. He or she is a good Samaritan. Uh, this is somebody who is helpful to others. But we also have the expression to pass by on the other side. That someone who passes by on the other side is someone who denies help to someone who they might have been able to help. So as we come to this, uh, this passage, I'm just going to give you a little heads up where we're going. We've really just got three points. If this is... Uh, this, uh, right, okay. So these, this is where we're going. We're going to talk about a confident lawyer. We're going to think about a compassionate enemy and a loving saviour. So first of all, we come to this, uh, this point here, a, a confident lawyer and his question. Now, as we read uh, the Gospels, uh, we, we read about Jesus traveling from place to place. And as he went from place to place, he would perform miracles. And these miracles then drew the crowds. And as the crowds came, people uh, would ask him questions. And sometimes the questions that people asked Jesus were sincere. They were genuine questions. We might think about Nicodemus, admittedly not from a crowd, but saying, how can a man be born when he is old? And this is a sincere question asking about what it means to be born again. But sometimes the questions that came to Jesus were quite scrutinizing. Uh, these tended to come from the religious elites, the leaders, and they wanted to find out if he was a fraud is this man a charlatan? They wanted to find out if he was sound, if he had his theology sorted out. And they also wanted to know if he had potential or what sort of potential he had. The crowds were following him. What would happen if they got behind him? What was his agenda? Who did he think he was? So in light of the potential that Jesus seemed to have, if he could be red-faced in some way, if he could be embarrassed... If he would then lose his luster and perhaps the crowds would desert him. And so we come to this passage. The passage that was read from uh, described him as a religious expert, I think, or an expert in the law. The ESV here has him as a lawyer. He was indeed a specialist in religious law. And we immediately discern that this young man is confident. He says, he, he says that he stands to test Jesus. Verse 25, we also sense that he is a precise individual. Verse 29, he says, well, who is my neighbor? So he stands to test. He's confident and precise. And there is something of a power play here, isn't there, taking place between Jesus and this man? Because in the culture of the day, a student would stand and the teacher would sit. But this young man doesn't stand to learn. Rather, he stands to test so we might ask, what sort of test was this? Was this a genuine teaser? You know, an ambulance is going down the road to answer a call and it knocks somebody over on the way. Do you stop and help the person you've knocked over or keep going to the call that you've received? You know, it's a bit of a teaser when you start to think about it. Or was he looking for a word out of place 
in the way that a journalist might scrutinise a politician's statement. Ah, but you said this. What did you mean by that? He stands to test Jesus. Now, Jesus has given summary statements of the law and the prophets before, so it's not beyond him to respond to this question. But Jesus says to him, asks the lawyer to answer his own question. And the lawyer doesn't say, well, well, I asked you first, by the way. No, he doesn't reply like that. He rather, we get the sense enthusiastically responds with his own knowledge. This is, this is what I think. He's quite keen to set it forward. And he says essentially that we should love the Lord our God with all of our heart and mind and soul and strength and love our neighbour as ourselves. And this is an unimpeachable answer. It is drawn from Leviticus chapter 19 verse 18 and Deuteronomy 6 verse 5. And Jesus approves of the answer. And by approving of the answer, he actually retains his teacherly authority. And the lawyer not only fails to catch Jesus, but loses a little bit of face in the process. And so seeking to catch the one that got away, scrambling to retain some purchase on Jesus, desperate to close the loopholes in his understanding, he calls out, and who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? But he should have paused for a moment. He should have paused for a moment. Because this exemplary answer is profound and very humbling. To love the Lord your God with all of your heart and mind and soul and strength. When we read the passage carefully, we see Jesus saying, you have answered the question correctly Do this and you will live. And I wonder whether there is a hint of sarcasm in the reply, almost like the contemporary expression, well, good luck with that. Why don't you try it and see how you get on? Can you do it? And if you can't do it, then what are you going to do? But rather than be humbled before the Lord, at this astonishing requirement of God's law. We rather, we rather find him seeking to justify himself. Now, we don't really live in religious days, do we? We live in a very secular society. We're not likely to turn on the television and find sort of the, the niceties of theology being discussed in front of us. But I would suggest that we're no less self-confident. We're self-made men and women. We are captains of our own destiny. We have an unerring confidence in our opinions and pronouncements about politics and the world around us. But let me ask you a question this morning as I ask myself, do we love the Lord, our God, with all of our heart? Do we love him with all of our soul? Do we love him with all of our mind and all of our strength? I think if we're honest, the answer to that has to be no. And we're humbled by it. In fact, we even sing it, don't we? Quoting from some more traditional hymns. How weak the effort of my heart. How cold my warmest thought. But when I see you as you are, I'll praise you as I ought. Or elsewhere we we sing, it is the most wonderful thing to know. His love for me so free and sure. But tis more wonderful to see. 
my love for him so faint and poor. It's not wonderful that our love is faint and poor, of course, but what is wonderful is that the Lord Jesus should love us the way that he does, despite the fact that we fail to return to him what he is worthy of. And so in light of this question, do do we love the Lord our God? We ought to be humbled and consider whether we do or not. Now, before we move on to the next point, I want us to consider the lawyer and his attitude in light of the story that follows. Because we look at this story and we might think, well, there's two choices here. Essentially, the challenge is, am I an indifferent religious person who walks past despite somebody else's suffering? Or am I the sort of person that finds their heart stirred with compassion and and is moved to act? But there's a third possibility for us to consider. And perhaps this is what the lawyer might have picked up on. That in actual fact, we're the one that is beaten up and by the side of the road. That actually, we're the one who is very much in need. And I think this is the point that the lawyer fails to grasp. He's confident in himself. He's precise in his understanding. And he seeks to justify himself. But actually, he is in need before the Lord. Okay, perhaps there's a delay in there. On the switch. Okay, so we come to a compassionate enemy. Surely uh, the first and most important uh, point of this story is answering the question, who is my neighbour? And we sort of get a sense from the question that if, if the lawyer can figure out who his neighbour is, then he can equally figure out who his neighbour is not. And therefore not just who he can and should help, but also who he doesn't need to bother helping. We essentially have three characters in this story. We have a man who is beaten up. He is traveling from the hills, uh, Jerusalem in the hills, down a steep road to the lowest place on earth, in fact, the Dead Sea, 17 miles along which we find Jericho. We also find a Samaritan, and Samaritans came from Samaria, which is just north of the southern province of Judea. Judea is is the religious center. It is where Jerusalem is. But Samaria is north of that. And about 700 years previously, it was annexed by the Assyrians. uh, And the the residents were, were exiled away. And it was repopulated with Assyrians and others. And these people coming in intermarried with the remaining Jews And the result of this was a racial and religious mix. It would have been regarded as a lack of purity, a dilution of a sort. And the Samaritans were regarded on a spectrum somewhere between disdain and loathing. And any right-thinking Jew wouldn't have even taken a cup of water from a Samaritan. It would be regarded as impure in some sense. And it's as if their impurity was was a communicable disease and so I think it's right when we thought about the kids talk before that when the Samaritan appears on the scene in verse 33 but a Samaritan as he journeyed we we do see him as something of the pantomime villain we don't expect very much from this guy there are probably a few boos and hisses so this is the Samaritan now we've also got a, a priest and a Levite now a priest 
was the senior figure of the two and a Levite was an assistant to a priest. And it would perhaps have been convenient for the priest or the Levite to help this poor man lying by the side of the road, half dead. It would perhaps have been convenient because the scholars tell us that the priests and the Levites were quite wealthy, in fact. And they used to ride carriages between Jericho and Jerusalem for their their stints at the temple to fulfill their duties. And so perhaps it would have been certainly relatively convenient for them to pick him up and take him to a place of help. On the other hand, it would have been inconvenient for them to respond. This would have brought ceremonial uncleanness upon them. Israel was set apart amongst the nations to be holy, but set set, set apart amongst the people to be more holy still was the priesthood. And so when we turn to the book of Leviticus and find the rules about the priests and what they should and shouldn't do, what we discover is that if an item has touched a dead body and then in turn touches a priest, that that priest is defiled by that. There's a kind of a transmissible defilement. But the priest, uh, of course, the priest and the Levite don't know whether he's dead or not. He perhaps looks like he is, but better not risk it, right? So just keep the distance. Now, that's not wrong, not to say that it was a sin or wrong to touch a dead body. There's a difference between sin and defilement. It rather would have brought inconvenience because they would have to have gone back up the hill, done some ceremonial washings and waited till sunset, according to Leviticus 22. So the priests who passed by on the other side were not forbidden from helping this man, but rather simply wanted to avoid the inconvenience of dealing with the defilement that it would have brought. So we have a man who is beaten up and lying by the side of the road. We have a priest and a Levite who find it too inconvenient to deal with. And we have a Samaritan who belongs to that category of people who are the enemies of Israel. Well, what does this mean for us today? This is the the moment where you begin to think what a contemporary equivalent might be. And it's not very easy. A man was going down the hill from Gilmerton to Liberton. And some youths jump upon him and beat him up. They beat him within an inch of his life, actually, and take his phone and his credit cards. They even run off with his trainers when the, when the news is heard about around about, everyone is shocked. Well, who is it that passes by? Who are we going to put in this category of the indifferent people? It's a bit of a difficult thing to face, to consider that. I'm going to keep it clerical and Christian despite the possible controversy, But perhaps it has to be controversial in a way, right? I mean, that's the whole point of the story. Keeping it clerical and Christian, a Catholic priest comes along. Now, he has mass to lead for his congregation. And so it's a bit inconvenient time-wise, frankly. And so he almost pretends as if he hasn't seen it and moves on. A Church of England vicar comes along and he thinks this clearly isn't a very safe place to be. He crosses the road and passes on himself too. 
But immediately we can see that the story is controversial, can't we? The clergy in Jesus' day must have been very corrupt for Jesus to take them and put them in this role. And for those listening to kind of think, yes, that's probably true, whilst at the same time treading on some very powerful and influential toes. And of course, it's not really fair to put the priests and the vicars in this category, many good and earnest and faithful serving in these ways. But the question is, who do we find who is going to be the hero? We need a hero in this story. So who's going to come along and save the day? Well, surely it's going to be the spirit-filled, Bible-believing, all-singing, all-dancing, Jesus-loving evangelical, isn't it? He has to be the hero. But no, it's the Muslim from next door who can prize more compassion from his false religion than the, than the Jesus-loving Christian can. I'd be surprised if any of us who have been Christians for more than a few years haven't from time to time been challenged to see non-Christians demonstrating more love and mercy than Christians sometimes do. Are we so convinced of the theological correctness that we are saved by grace? That is to say that we are saved by the unmerited kindness of God. That this is a salvation which we can contribute nothing towards. Are we so convinced of the correctness of this that on some subtle and underlying way it begins to make us think that we're absolved from responsibility? That we're clearer on how we've been saved but not so clear on what we've been saved for? Is it possible? Or are we so particular about our time that the inconvenience of a delayed schedule suffocates the possibility of demonstrating compassion? Do we see time as a commodity to be saved or as a resource to be spent and used for other people? A brief story from my own experience. I could tell you one or two that wouldn't show me in a positive light, if I'm honest, but a word of testimony. It's impossible to prepare this message without saying to God in prayerful preparation, Lord, is there somebody that you want me to help? And this happened about two weeks ago. How could I not pray that? And that very day, that very day, a message came through on one of my so social media, one of my messaging apps, simply saying, can you help me? Now, this request for help came from a friend. It wasn't from an enemy. And it's a little bit inconvenient, but not hugely. But perhaps when we reflect on this story this morning, there's a very simple application for all of the historical background and the, the details. And that is just simply that we open our eyes and say to God, who is it that you want me to help? That a simple question like that to God might present us with profound opportunities to serve him. Who is it, Lord, you want me to help? Well, we'll turn to our final point, a loving saviour, a loving saviour. Why is the Samaritan set forth as a good example to us? Why is he set forth as a good example to us? Surely it is because he is a picture of the ministry of Jesus. Surely what the 
Samaritan did is actually, is actually what Jesus would have done. And in, in some sense, illustrates everything that he did. For example, in verse 33, we read, But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. Jesus frequently is described as having compassion on the crowds that gathered to hear him. He inconveniences himself. We notice that he delays his journey. This is back to the time point. This is going to add time to his journey. And there's a risk element too. He's hanging around on a road where clearly there are robbers, but he's willing to go through that. Well, to say that Jesus inconvenienced himself for us would be an understatement, wouldn't it? That Jesus would come and be God with us, that he would experience the kind of life that we experience. He inconvenienced himself. He shows care by pouring on oil and wine, verse 34. Jesus cared for those who came to him. And of course, he sacrifices, verse 35. We see that he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. And this would have been two days' wages. And Jesus also sacrificed for us when he died for us on the cross. Well, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and two say the following, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. Back to the previous point about the lawyer. Had he considered that he was the one that was in need? We are the ones who were in need. We were dead in our sins and our trespasses. So who is it that passes us by, indifferent to our circumstances? Richard Dawkins, always good for a quote to kind of rail against in some ways, uh, said the following. He says that the universe offers us nothing but blind and pitiless indifference. Quite a striking phrase when we reflect on the priest and the Levite, isn't it? Who may have felt something in their hearts, but certainly not enough to move them. It was effectively indifference. Travelling last uh, Sunday it was up from the Friends International Conference. Uh, you, you pass through the various regions of the country, you know, and BBC York comes on the radio. And it was Sunday morning, so they had a Christian slot, it seems. And a lady was uh, invited to share the story of how she became a Christian. And her journey began when her husband was given a cancer diagnosis. And what she said is that at that, right at that moment, she felt as if life was completely futile and completely pointless. And she went outside and she screamed at the sky. She railed against the universe for its indifference to her circumstances. Another quote from a blog on the matter says that the universe kicks you in the shins and rubs your face up against the wall. This is what we have if we have a materialistic worldview that is to say if all we believe in is the other things that we can see we're faced with an indifference and a pitilessness which passes us by and leaves us in our desperate situation or we might turn to buddhism for example and a paper on salvation in buddhism says the following it says that eastern religions claim that salvation can be attained by using only inner human resources they tend to stress self-help through individual disciplines and practice 
So here we are, on the one hand, indifference. On the other hand, self-help. But neither one is able to deal with us in the circumstances that we find ourselves. And so we turn to verse 34 and we read about the Samaritan. He went to him. He went to him. What do we need? We need a saviour. That's what we need. We need a saviour. Jesus' name means God saves. And the whole ministry of Jesus was a ministry of salvation. Everywhere he went, everything he said, everything he did was about restoring wholeness and peace to people. If we go back to chapter 10 and verse 25, this confident lawyer, it says, stood up to test Jesus saying, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Well, the answer to that is there's nothing we can do. We need a savior to come to us and to deliver us. And that savior is Jesus. Do we see ourselves in, the, in need of God this morning? And who are those people who God wants us to help? Those people who God wants us to follow the example of Jesus in and copy his example. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage in your word, this story of Jesus, this event in the life of Jesus. And we are humbled by the example of Jesus. We are humbled by his compassion and his mercy. And we confess, Father God, that very often we are too consumed with our own agenda, our own schedule, to open our eyes and to see the need around us. Father, we pray that you would replace what is too often an indifference with rather a full heart of love for you. Lord, there are many temptations and difficulties around us. And very often our love of other things, whatever they may be, squeeze that love in our hearts that we have for you. Father, we pray that you would forgive us. Father, we pray that you would help us to see Jesus in all of his light, in all of his splendor, in all of his glory, and to be consumed with a love for him. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for coming to us. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for saving us. In Jesus' name, amen.